0: Hey, it's Monday, July 27th. Greg Brady in for Bill Kelly today, and it's the Bill Kelly podcast. Well, we started talking about what parents are expecting this week. It's going to be a big announcement from the province. They've laid that out about the education system and whether our kids are going back to school five days a week, whether they should, and what the variance will be between online learning and in-class learning. Sabrina Nanji joined me from Queen's Park today with some insight on what she might expect from the Ford government and also the Liberal Party of Ontario laid out a plan as to how to reopen schools. It's going to cost $3.2 billion. Why will it cost so much? And will the provincial government take heed on some of that financial advice from, well, a political rival? Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, joins me to discuss one of our favorite epidemiologists. That's true. Joins us. David Fisman, who's professor in the Division of Epidemiology. We'll talk about the Phase 3 reopening. And as well, things are blowing up with Major League Baseball. Uh, His concern about whether sports, there's very different plans, obviously, for the NHL and Major League Baseball, whether sports can and will and should continue. Over the next several weeks or not. And we'll talk to Daniel Wallach, a sports and entertainment lawyer, about a lawsuit involving NHL star Jeremy Roenick towards NBC claiming discrimination. There's a lot of intriguing layers to that particular lawsuit. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly podcast. Enjoy it. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to update you on, uh, on a multiple alarm fire. That was devastating in the Stony Creek community uh, at 49 Eden Rock Drive. Eleven complexes are, in essence, completely destroyed. That's for obviously the investigators and the insurance people to uh, to look at. But uh, it was a difficult difficult evening with a lot of people losing all of their uh, possessions. The remarkable thing, there are no deaths, there are no significant injuries. We bring in Hamilton Fire Chief uh, David Cunliffe now to uh, tell us a little bit more. Chief Cunliffe, thanks very much for the time. I can't imagine how busy and overnight it was, so I appreciate you making a few minutes for me and our audience. Oh, you're welcome. This had to be, uh, you've seen a lot of things I'm sure in, uh, in a long career at at doing this over three decades, uh, describe the devastation you saw, the video I saw, you could see right through, uh, these townhouse complexes. It, it ravaged this complex. Um, can you compare it to anything you've seen previously?
1: Well, certainly we've had some fairly significant incidents here in the city of Hamilton. And, uh, one of the ones, uh, there was a few of us, uh, they we were talking afterwards, and one of the it, when you saw the wall of fire uh, going through the structures, uh, it reminded us of the Wentworth Street school fire that uh, happened many many years ago. Um, just a solid wall of flames. We've had similar type incident in Waterdown uh, three or four years ago with a townhouse unit as well. Um, it was very significant. Um, the call came in this morning about two forty in the morning. Um, we were uh, on scene for a uh, structure fire in one of the end units. Um, just so that you get some perspective, these units are grouped in eights, And so it was an end unit of, 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 of one complex. So that unit was on fire. We had fire, uh, heavy fire coming out of uh, all the windows and through the roof area. And then we had a very uh, very heavy and sustained uh, southerly wind, which then was fanning the fire to the north and onto to the next uh, block of eight townhouses. So as that fire was rapidly moving through that complex, uh, it was uh, it was pretty wild. There was a lot of a uh, lot of fire, a lot of flame, a lot of embers. I got to tell you, the crews did a tremendous job. Um, mm-hmm. They got there, they made a decision to uh, to try and cut off this fire before it got to the next group of eight. Um, they deployed uh, two aerial devices uh, and heavy, uh, large volume uh, hose lines and they were able to hold the fire at bay, keep it uh, contained. But unfortunately, as you mentioned, that uh, we did have 11 units in total that were involved, three in the uh, the eight block, and then uh, two others in addition to the coroner unit.
0: David Cunliffe is the uh, fire chief for uh, the Hamilton Fire Department. It, remarkable also because of the time of day, uh, right, Chief Cunliffe, that, that everybody gets out. That's often when we lose lives. That's often when there are significant bird injuries is w- people are so asleep and they're in a state of confusion and the and you know sluggishness and they can't get out. It's remarkable and I I, I bet no doubt to, to some of your men and women that they were able to get every building evacuated.
1: Yeah, I, I at, uh, at around uh, 2.40 in the morning, obviously, most people are asleep in bed, and, and so we're very fortunate uh, that people were able to get out, self-evacuate. Uh, certainly, uh, the neighbourhood came alive, and uh, we had a lot of neighbours helping in terms of bang on doors, and then we certainly had the help of the Hamilton Police Service, who went door-to-door with some of our uh, firefighters to make sure people were getting out as that fire was moving rapidly. Um, you know, again... It just—it's uh, another uh, tale about smoke alarms. There were smoke mm-hmm. alarms sounding in the original unit. Um, we've heard smoke alarms in the other units certainly when I was on scene uh, first thing this morning. And so it's just a reminder to uh, your listeners of the importance of having working smoke alarms on all levels of your home.
0: It really is. Um, where where do we go with uh, a timeline for a potential uh, in- investigation to find out the the cause? How 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 does that manifest itself for for what you do now?
1: So, uh, because of the uh, significant nature of this fire, 11 units. Obviously, the dollar loss value is going to be uh, exceptional. Probably uh, exceeding a five million dollars. We've notified the Ontario Fire Marshal's Office. They are sending investigators to the scene, and they're going to work in conjunction with both Hamilton Fire Department and the Hamilton Police Service uh, to try and uh, determine cause and area of origin of this fire. And uh, we expect them to be here probably by noon hour today, and then that investigation will, uh, will start. Uh, and then once that's completed, it may take a day or two to do that. And then uh, uh, based on the findings, uh, we expect at that point we can turn over these residences to the uh, insurance companies.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a devastating loss of of people's personal possessions. But again, you know, a remarkable story uh, that that no injuries and and no deaths uh, and no doubt uh, partially a result of you guys acting so fast. Thanks very much for the time. Like I said, I know it's been a long overnight, so I appreciate you coming on today.
1: No worries. You're welcome. Thanks very much.
0: Got it. David Cunliffe is the chief of Hamilton Fire Department. So that's a three-story townhouse. That's not, you know, that the, the fire shot up. The wind, as as the chief mentioned, was a big, big factor. And 11 townhouses completely destroyed. And uh, you can imagine, you, you know, you've lost everything. It's There's people that don't like throwing anything out. They want to keep something because it reminds them of a time and a place. And imagine, snap of a finger overnight this isn't something where there's a warning and you got an hour to collect things 20 minutes to collect things it's all it's all gone you got to grab yourself grab your partner grab your kids get your pets and get out and that's that that will take longer than you could possibly think get in get in your car which is parked right beside the fire and you got to drive the hell out of there like honestly we all we all would get tested dramatically Uh, doing that and deciding, you know, what, what can I grab in a hurry? Uh, And, and again, life, you can't replace a life. There's lots of things that you're going to be able to replace and some not, but Life is the essence, right? And they got everybody out. It's a rather remarkable story when you see the scope of the fire and see the video and the still photos. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're
2: also ensuring $1.4 billion in the renewal funding to do what you say in the context of improving ventilation or HVAC capacity or hand sanitation centers. Uh, or you know, even a working water fountains, that type of investment, we are doing so.
0: All right, Stephen Lecce, the education minister for the province of Ontario from the Conservative Party, expecting an announcement a little later on this week. We're going to talk to Stephen Del Duca in this segment as well, who's the leader of the Liberal Party. He laid it out, fully costed plan to get students back into classroom safety, but he's telling you what they need, he's telling you money they need, additional educators, additional caretakers in each of the, Ontario's major cities, including Toronto, including Hamilton, including London. It's going to be interesting to see if uh, the government uh, acknowledges that that's the case and uh, if there is a plan. Because we didn't need details a month ago, but we're getting a lot closer now. And even if there's no announcement per se, you got to do a lot of work. you got to do a lot of research and start getting things ready before there's any kind of rollout of an announcement. So you can't announce what you plan to do and say, and now we're going to start the preparation for it. The prep should have been going on for weeks, and we might get a better sense this week uh, finding out whether that is the case or not. Very pleased to welcome in our next guest. She does fantastic job for Queen's Park today uh, covering the province, covering Queen's Park. Sabrina Nanji, our guest on The Bill Kelly Show. Sabrina, it's Greg Brady. Thanks very much for taking the time to do this.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me, Greg.
0: What are your expectations, uh, either in terms of uh, a date or a time, uh, for Minister Lecce to, to make this particular announcement?
3: Yeah, uh, so this week, parents, students, and school boards will get uh, finally get a little more details on these hotly anticipated back-to-school plans. We haven't been given a specific date, but I can say that I don't think it's happening today. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got the premier's media advisory for his usual 1 p.m. presser, um, but I will just preface our little education chat by saying the finance minister, transportation minister, and municipal minister are all up today, and we're thinking that they could announce how they're going to divvy up this seven billion dollars of uh, restart funding, which does include money for to ensure adequate child care child care spaces, and this is sort of the other piece of the puzzle of returning back to school. But I don't want to get too yeah. ahead of myself. Uh, you know what? What I'm going to be looking for from the education minister when that comes this week uh, is if the government can can put their money where their mouth is uh, and and give us the funding details and as well as details of their plans you had mentioned steven del duca the liberal leader put out a costed plan this morning he's pegging the cost province-wide at 3.2 billion going towards extra teachers sanitization that sort of thing but he's third party and uh i want to see what what the government's going to do
0: yeah that's a a huge factor it's it's you know there's not much del duca he doesn't exactly hold a lot of leverage with being able to influence outside of the of the public specter, but it does give a sense that this isn't going to be, um, you know, to get schools where they need to be, Sabrina, it's not going to be inexpensive. And again, it, it's not like it doesn't take, um, it's going to take every day of the next five weeks, really. Um, and remember, they also, for our audience, they had talked about getting kids even in school before Labor Day to make up some time. Labor Day is, I think, on the seventh this year. They wanted kids in school the week before, they've mentioned.
3: Yeah, so so 3.2 billion, I mean, that's not chump change by any means. Uh, and I think it's also going, you know, the funding is also going to depend on what the school year looks like, and we don't really know yet. Lecce had asked school boards to draft three pronged plans, you know, one for fully remote online learning, one for fully in-person school learning, and then a combination of the two. He initially asked boards to, to focus on the hybrid model, but their language has now changed. The premier has since said he wants to have kids, especially elementary kids who are younger, back in class five days a week. You know, high school kids, they can sort of take care of themselves for the most part. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that these boards were given until August 1st to hand in their plans to the minister. So it does seem that uh, because they've, you know, teased an announcement this week that they may already be leaning one way. We've heard the premier muse about outdoor classrooms in September. um, And then maybe for the colder months, they'll have to get creative again. Um, I, I think, you know, school boards and teachers especially are going to have their eyes peeled for added funding and resources which has also been promised. Um, they, they're saying that the school board, uh, sorry, they're saying that the government uh, needs to cough up more dough for everything from you know bus rides to and from school every day to hiring more teachers to handle these cohorts of 15 students that they want to set up. Some boards are even putting out doomsday scenarios and say, you know without more cash they might not be able to offer. French programs or full time learning. So I think that uh, we're going to definitely need to see the government put uh, put its money to to back up whatever it is that they announced this week.
0: Sabrina Nanji, our guest on the Bill Kelly Show for uh, Queens Park today. It's funny you mentioned that because I, I saw a video on uh, from the states, and I know we think well that they're botching this, they're botching that in the U.S. But in a couple states, it seems really progressive. They are talking about. Um, almost like a, like, a, like an open-ended tent, um, like you would have for a wedding, just almost like a, an awning, and setting up chairs, setting up desks, and especially in some of the warmer weather states where you could potentially have kids outside um, to the max, potentially till November. And, and, you know, I thought that's a really unique idea. I don't know if we're talking about that as much in a province like Ontario because it's not the kind of thing you'll be able to put together in seven or ten days. you got to be planning that now.
3: Right. I think, yeah, even the premier, he, he had just sort of talked about it. He even said off the cuff, he was just sort of talking in passing with the school board trustee and teacher, but they were also on the same board. I think the idea of outdoor learning is certainly gaining traction. Um, I, I guess it's, you know, the, the board might be incorporating some of that into their plan. Um, I think I I had even read that uh, you know, back in the day, like during during a plague, that Toronto had done this. So it, it is mm. something that, you know, we are capable of doing here. I think that uh the trouble comes after September. This might just be a solution for five weeks uh in September and then when the colder months rolled around roll around, it's not really like you can have outdoor learning. So I think everyone is learning as we go. But yeah, we're about five weeks out from the school year now. Um, the, the plan start date is september 3rd so i think uh, you know people are going to need to, to the government especially is going to need to give parents some direction and, and certainly answer the child care question you
0: know, well and you could also speak to the to the you know the regional focus and and the great dichotomy if you will of of certain regions who have very very few covid cases there are, there are you know regions and counties in ontario that almost match what atlantic canada is as in the virus is basically non-existent and the province has to be very aware as they have been with you know moving through stages we're still stuck obviously in toronto and peel region and windsor essex in stage two but they've got to be very aware um that there just can't be anything province wide you're either going to be too restrictive or not restrictive enough if you don't go almost county by county
3: yeah that's that's exactly it. I mean, they've taken a regional approach to reopening the economy. So, so it does seem plausible that they would do this for all 72 school boards here. Uh, I don't know if, you know, a school board in Sudbury would necessarily need to have the same restrictions or be dealing with the same issues as a school board in downtown Toronto, or I should say the TDSB mm-hmm. down here. So Uh, you know, the premier did say in question period, and it it had some of us scratching our heads, I will say, that he had said that they had asked the school boards to draft their own plans and giving the school school board control, which uh, I'm not sure if he meant exactly that, making the final decision. But I think this is why the education minister has asked the individual boards for their plans. That way they can speak to their individual unique situations. You mentioned some bots aren't reporting any cases. Uh, many public health units are reporting less than five new cases every day now. So I think that, you know, taking a regional approach to this is something that that uh, is very likely to happen.
0: So uh, last thing for you, Sabrina, do you, uh, this came out around Wednesday afternoon, obviously, what transpired with, uh, um, you know, the Cambridge MP, Belinda Car- uh mm-hmm. and she obviously was ousted from the party caucus. Has, has the premier... Fully, in in your mind, Um, you know, again, the the access is basically daily, but he's been traveling and been doing the the touring basically across the province. Has it been addressed to a a lot of people's satisfaction, either be at the media or other parties? We know this is sort of what transpires when you um, go against a, a government, a majority government in this case. But she had genuine, you know, genuine concerns about the checks and balances in the legislative process for Bill 195.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, the premier, as, as far as, you know, inside baseball, the political side of this, I think, you know, people aren't super surprised, uh, you know, the, the the leaders of the party, they, they typically do this politically, if, if you're not towing the party line, uh, it's a risk you take. But I'm not sure if the premier has, has really, you know, satisfied people on the fact that, like about Belinda's concerns about Bill 195 specifically, you know, uh, she did say it was an unnecessary overreach of power, that, uh, you know, it muzzles MPPs uh, from speaking out about this. You know, fair enough, the government needs to manage this pandemic. It has a majority, so it will likely get to do what it wants to do. But she's upset because she thinks it's an overreach and she won't get to voice her dissent. And neither will any other MPPs. And actually, I had heard that there was at least a dozen other within the PC caucus that had had concerns about the bill itself um And had voiced their concerns. But I think that there was this sense that, you know, if you speak up against it, if you take a stand against it, um, you're going to you're going to have to deal with the consequences. So I, I think the political side is not as surprising. But I think, yeah, there there's probably some more people that the premier needs to satisfy when it comes to, uh, you know, the powers in, in Bill 195.
0: Phenomenal stuff, Sabrina. Uh, really enjoy your work. Thanks very much for taking some time with us today.
3: Yes. Thanks for having me.
0: You got it. Uh, Sabrina Nanji, of course. You can follow her on Twitter at Sabrina Nanji. That's N A N J I uh, for her last name. Um, and we'll see what the province uh, does indeed say today. Let's turn our attention to the leader of the Liberal Party in the province. Uh, they put out some very uh, well researched. Very, how would I put it, uh, stark numbers in terms of the economics that the province is facing and that the provincial government is facing. Stephen Del Duca, uh, Ontario Liberal leader, joins me now on the Bill Kelly Show. Stephen, it's Greg Brady. Thanks very much for making the time today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Well, like I said, it's a uh, it's very comprehensive. You really uh, do th- this study and this release today breaks it down in terms of uh, the new classroom locations, new caretakers, new educators, uh, and none of these things are inexpensive uh, to to say the very least. Do you? What was the motivation? What was the uh, sort of? How did this manifest itself to unveil this plan? And and especially, I think parents appreciate it to do it region by region.
2: Well, look, we're we're about 5 weeks away from the scheduled start of the school year and I yes, I'm a politician, but I'm also a parent. And you know, my wife and I we have two daughters. Uh, our older daughter is going into grade 8 and our younger daughter is going into grade 4. Mm-hmm. And I think over the last couple of months, we like many other parents, most parents across Ontario have felt a great deal of anxiety over the issue that we don't know for sure what's happening come September and I know it's not an easy issue to unpack for any government. I got to a point just uh, about a week and a half ago where I said to myself and to my team, we can't just criticize. We can't just say the Doug Ford government's not doing enough, though I believe they're not doing enough on education. We have to put out some ideas that tell people that there is a way to get this done. It is, our plan today is comprehensive. I believe it's the best way to go forward to make sure that our students and everyone else in the education system can be safe come September I think it's a good plan in terms of helping our economy to continue to reopen so moms and dads can go back to work as we enter and stay in stage three, hopefully right around the province. Mm -hmm. And I sincerely hope Doug Ford will steal the plan and implement it over the next five weeks. I'm I'm nervous that he won't, uh, but I sincerely hope that he does.
0: Stephen Del Duca is our guest, leader of the Liberal Party. I'll lay this out, uh, just some of the raw numbers for our, our audience regionally. In Hamilton, 320 additional caretakers, 710 additional educators, and 650 new classroom locations. In London, it's 820 classroom locations. 860 educators, 440 additional caretakers. Explain if you can to the audience what new classroom locations means. That's that's within the body of a high school itself or an elementary school itself, or is that a completely separate uh, address in terms of a location?
2: It would be a combination of both. So, of course, we'd use all of our elementary schools. And, and the number for, for new classrooms or non-conventional classrooms. It's mostly the elementary system that we're talking about. There's a slightly different approach we're proposing take place for for high schools but for elementary schools it would be the schools themselves and then other public spaces community centers libraries arenas perhaps spaces that are privately owned frankly even outdoors there are many Mm -hmm. places in the world including places where the weather gets cold like it does here in Ontario uh, that do have some outdoor classroom learning and so I'm calling on the government to work with our municipal partners and the private sector and others to try to find those alternative non-conventional classrooms Make sure that there's a certified teacher at the front of those unconventional classrooms. And the reason for that is so that in the elementary grades, no more than 15 students are actually in any one of those traditional or non-conventional classrooms so that they can all be physically distant so that they can be safe.
0: Uh, Is there anything to learn from uh, a prototype, if you will, from what Quebec did? And Quebec did this obviously before the summer break. Um, You know, they were the primary province, despite cases in Montreal. So they didn't do the city of Montreal. But kids everywhere besides Montreal went back uh, for several weeks in late May, early June. Only about two thirds of parents decided to send those particular kids. But for the most part, Stephen, it was deemed uh, a success. Education experts said it went very, very well.
2: Yeah, we have a lot to learn here in Ontario, not just from the Quebec example, but there are dozens of examples from around the world where places have gotten it right and places have realized that they could probably do a better job. And one of the reasons I wanted our plan to be completely comprehensive, and I also recognize that some parents might not feel comfortable for their kids to go back to school, regardless of how good the plan is. And some kids may be vulnerable. They may be immunocompromised. That's why we've included a specific and ambitious provision to help provide up to 400,000 new devices like for technology for the students to be able to stay at home if they need to and continue to learn and more funding for professional development for teachers so that they can be online if they need to be as well.
0: So how far behind in your estimation is the Ford government? I think they the one thing I'd say is if they'd announced a a, a grand plan for, you know, right before Labor Day weekend and they'd announced that in June, we'd be we'd be critical in saying we don't know what the next eight weeks are going to bring in terms of case numbers or, or in terms of more medical research that as we as we all know, we've. We've seen this virus evolve, but our knowledge has evolved uh, uh, along with it since March and April. What, How far do you feel they're behind?
2: I think, unfortunately, they're really far behind. I've had the chance now to speak with several dozen partners in education from around the province and from the child care sector. And the scariest thing to me is that most of those partners have told me they frankly haven't even heard from the government. We're only five weeks away. So I think this should have been an all hands on deck moment. Back in March, I think if the government had, had rallied sort of the troops, to put it that way, and figured out some semblance of a plan way back then, we'd, we'd probably be in much strong, stronger shape. But we can't look backwards. We've got about five weeks. I have immense confidence in the people of Ontario to be able to reorient towards something. I, again, I hope we see the premier step to the microphone this week and say, whatever it costs, whatever we have to do, public education is one of his core responsibilities We're going to get this right. Let's do something ambitious and bold. And I hope he steals my plan. I don't think he will. Mm. But I sincerely again, I sincerely hope that he will.
0: Stephen Del Duke is our guest leader of the Liberal Party uh, of the province of Ontario. Uh, We're both parents, uh, but we also both probably know a lot of teachers. What would you say the average psyche is of a teacher? And does it vary from someone who's teaching, say, grade 12 history and economics and maybe doesn't have to get his quote unquote hands on with, with his or her students? as we're talking a junior kindergarten teacher where we know what that's like, it's obvious, um, that there's a lot more, you know, close interaction and, and, you know, you can't prevent that at, at those ages.
2: Oh, I, I think it does vary, but, but pretty much across the board, every teacher that I've spoken to is again, anxiety off the charts. They don't know mm-hmm. what it's going to look like. They've all heard different, different sets of ideas coming out from different boards that they don't think they're and they're right. There hasn't been any province wide sort of minimum guideline. I think there are a lot of teachers who might be a little bit older, who might be a little bit more vulnerable. Again, they themselves might be immunocompromised or have family members at home that are immunocompromised. Our plan actually takes that into account. There'd be enough new teachers in the system that we would bring online so that if there were teachers who couldn't teach, we'd be able to take care Mm -hmm. of that. And again, I think if the government signaled to those teachers that might not have the capacity or would be vulnerable to go back into a classroom that they don't have to, uh, that there are other things that within the system that they could help with. But again, they they haven't provided that, that level of clarity. I, I, I hope they will. I, teachers, educators, they need to know that the government's also going to be on their side because when my daughters go into their classroom in September, when any child in Ontario goes into a classroom or is learning, you want the person at the front of that classroom to actually be motivated and energized and enthusiastic and not, not freaking out because they're worried about their own health. So the government really does need to step up and say something definitive, and I expect we're going to hear more this week. I'm nervous that it's not going to be particularly bold or ambitious, and they're frankly going to try Mm. to keep out on this one, which on public education we can't afford to do. But I've got my fingers crossed that I'll be proven wrong and they'll actually do something ambitious. Yeah, it'll
0: have a domino effect if parents don't feel confident sending their kids right. back. Then there's uh, that affects every single workplace in our province. So I, we're right. tight for time, but a caller wants to know, a listener wants to know how how about accommodating rural areas and internet connections? There's going to have to be some sort of online option uh, in some right. communities, and that's something that the province obviously struggled with again with with little planning. They had to they had to move quickly, yeah. but they've had the time now to plan these things. And there's concerns from from parents about this
2: yeah as there should be so we've set aside in our plan this is again a province-wide number up to 200 million dollars that would be set aside for new devices and assistance with technology to put that to break that down if it was just for devices that would be able to fund up to four hundred thousand across the province if it needs to, if it needs to be to help support some of the infrastructure broadband infrastructure expansion it could be as well but that caller is 100 percent right we can't leave any part of ontario behind
0: Appreciate the time. Uh, thanks very much, Stephen. I greatly uh, greatly appreciate you making uh, the time for our audience to lay that out for us.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. Take care.
0: Got it. Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. That's it's, There's a lot of ambition in what was laid out by the Liberal Party. They are the third party. They don't have a lot of power. They don't have a lot of sway and influence right now. But pff, the government needs to, to listen to every single voice uh, to make sure they get this right. It's critical. This isn't just obviously. This isn't just about politics. This is about how you and I are going to live in september october november you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml dr david Fistman uh has been fantastic throughout uh accommodating the media and he accommodates me and our audience uh today dr Fistman it's great to have you on i know you've noted this on sports like what with baseball especially no hubs no sense of a of a bubble whatsoever what on earth? Why Why did we think, why did we hesitate even for a second thinking that all 30 teams could complete a 60-game season getting on and off airplanes and in and out of hotels?
4: You know, I, I think the the power of positive thinking is wonderful, but when you're using wishful thinking to drive policy, you get into trouble, and um, this isn't a huge surprise. I think it'll be a huge surprise if we complete the baseball season without Seeing one of the older, you you know, an umpire or a manager uh, on a ventilator, because I think that's where this is going. You know, twenty-year-old baseball players are overwhelmingly going to be okay with this, but there are a lot of older people around on these teams, and um, you know, I I, I get it. I get the impulse towards trying to maintain normalcy, and it's obviously it's it's more than a game; it's a business, and it's it's a multi-billion-dollar business. And um, uh, so, you, you know, there's a lot of incentive to make the season mm-hmm. happen. But, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I'm very glad that our federal government uh, decided not to uh, do a quarantine waiver for the Blue Jays. I think that would have been a really bad idea.
0: I know you noted and tweeted it out. There was uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates manager came out of his dugout to argue with the umpire, and they both right. had, they both had to put masks on. Yet they're still <laughs> they're still yelling at each other about balls yeah, and strikes from about about nine inches away from each other's mouths. They're bumping chests, They've
4: got their <laughs> masks on. Yeah, no, that was that was kind of cute. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, and I think it'll be interesting to see whether these constructed bubbles around the NBA players and the NHL players, whether, whether they do any better, you know, clubhouses, dugouts, large groups of people together, large groups of young people who are more likely to have minimally symptomatic infection. Mm. Uh, it, it does seem like a bit of a setup to have, uh, uh, have outbreaks, and uh, hopefully that won't happen. But I, I guess we'll, I guess we'll have to see.
0: Uh, I know Dr. Dr. Teresa Tam talked about a COVID fatigue for people under forty. Uh, and last week, obviously, it was noted that sixty percent of the of the positive cases um, in Ontario were people under forty. Now we hear about this Brampton party with two hundred people there. Now it could have been that zero people. Um, you know, had COVID at the party. But boy, that's that's a dice roll of to the nth degree. What's your thought on that? Um, you yeah. know, we, we didn't want to shame older people into wanting to continue to do the things they wanted to do in March and April, cruises and buffet dinners and whatnot. But, you know, the, being practical is being practical. We've got provincial emergency orders and they were violated by hundreds of people over the weekend.
4: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I, I would like to see some peace In these orders i'd like to see some big fines levied for things like that because when folks do things like that they're they're not just putting themselves at risk they're they're creating the potential for a super spreader event which can ripple out and affect all of us um you know others have pointed out that what we're trying to do right now is get disease incidents good and low so we have the best chance possible to open schools in basically a month's time now, you know, that's um, a month is about four or five generations for this disease. So that's not that far away. And we don't have a lot of time to get disease incidents down. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I think when people do really antisocial and selfish things like that, there there, there should be consequences. I I know that when I spoke to my cousin in Madrid, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, when Madrid was on full lockdown, she needed a legit reason to go out of her house and engage in activities. And if you were being frivolous, the Spanish were actually fining people. It was a thousand euro fine, is what she told me, for, for being out of the house without a reason. We're not on lockdown anymore, but we still do have some, you know, some regulations, some, some standards in order, some standards in place in terms of, of, of what we expect of people. And I think when you have flagrant violations of that, there should be some consequences for the folks who do that because it's not fair to the community.
0: Uh, Dr. Jennifer Kwan, who I also think has been excellent in terms of informing, as you have on, on social media, put a poll up about masks um for part of school reopening plans and 86.4 percent of people who responded said they should be mandatory and i think we're talking both teachers educators educational assistants and yes indeed uh the students only 5.4 percent of 3,700 people said no uh to masks for parents and kids where do you think or sorry teachers and kids many of whom are parents where do you think we get to in september do we open schools but masks will be mandatory I think, I think
4: down to some age, I think there's going to be a, a sort of a head of pressure building up on masks because there's such an easy win, mm-hmm. especially for older kids and especially for teachers. And just to be clear, for, for COVID, most of the benefit from masks probably comes by preventing the person with the mask from transmitting to others. So, you know, we can argue about the degree to which a mask protects you from getting COVID, The problem with this disease is we have this about two-day period where people don't have symptoms but are shedding virus. And in an indoor space without a mask on, that creates the potential for aerosol. So we, we now know that with COVID, some of these super spreader events relate to aerosol being created by a cough, by someone singing, by someone shouting loudly, you know, stuff that's not unlikely to happen in a classroom. And if you get a cloud of very small droplets, those can hang and infect a lot of people. So so the reason to push for masks and face shields is to reduce the likelihood that someone creates one of these super spreader events, which can potentially take a classroom or a school down. Um, I get it that with very young kids, you're not going to succeed with masks. But we also can look around the world and see countries like South Korea, like Thailand, who have fairly young kids wearing masks without problems. And I think a lot of it comes down to just role modeling and attitude from the adults who can help the kids, you know, help the kids to achieve what they need to achieve to keep themselves and their classmates safe.
0: Dr. David Fisman uh, at U of T, your uh, your opinions, your your information has been very very valuable uh, online on social media. Please do keep it up, and thanks for spending the time with me today.
4: Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you,
0: David Fisman, joining us. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Jeremy Roenick, you would know him incredibly well, right? Last guy knocked the Leafs out in 2004. Last time they got out of the first round or we're trying to get out of the first round and we're so close outside of these last couple Boston years, but that led to a nine year playoff drought for the Leafs. He gets the goal for the Philadelphia Flyers. He's got over 500 goals. He's incredibly well known in the States, a lot of U.S. hockey, uh, international play as well. So he's suing NBC for wrongful termination. There are 12 claims in the lawsuit, but he says this is about discrimination. He went on a podcast and joked about a threesome. Basically, that's the worst thing that he did with his wife and his co-worker on NBC Sports and, and NHL coverage on NBC, Catherine Tappan. Now, his wife and Catherine Tappan are very good friends. Catherine Tappan at the time said she was disappointed by the comments, but it's Jeremy is Jeremy. She, I, d, unless we know otherwise, she didn't call for his dismissal. So this has a lot of fascinating layers to it. To break some of them down, uh, an excellent follow on Twitter at Wallach Legal, and he's a legal analyst for The Athletic as well, and a gaming law and sports betting attorney from L- Wallach Legal LLC, uh, Daniel Wallach, our guest. Daniel, it's great to talk to you again. It's Greg Brady. Thanks very much for taking the time. you are really fine, Greg. Um, give us the, the the basic nuts and bolts uh, of you know no one's ever sure when there's a, a dismissal that's got some contentiousness to it uh, and some you know avarice to it if you will that there's going to be a lawsuit result. Um, would you were you surprised that this got filed and and this is obviously uh, cited so it cited a lot of reaction from people defending Roenick for I suppose a freedom of speech issue and the idea that now you can't talk about your coworker that way no matter who you are.
5: Well, I mean, to first address the freedom of speech issue, uh, the First Amendment in the United States applies to governmental entities and state agencies and to public employees. If you work in the private sector, you do not have First Amendment rights or freedom of speech rights. However, there are laws on the books for uh, that, that protect against workplace discrimination on the basis of gender or sexual orientation. And that's the legal path that Jeremy Roenick is traveling down uh, to seek compensation for his, wrong, for his termination by NBC. Now, what's really strange about this uh, firing is that he was an employee of, of NBC for 10 years. Uh, he was a you know, veteran uh, you know, on-air uh, personality who was already serving a suspension. For making these uh, intemperate remarks on barstools podcast mm-hmm. about wanting to have a threesome with one of his co-workers and uh talking about body you know his co-workers body parts on a podcast but what you have to remember is that he's not just representing jeremy roenick when he goes on to a podcast he's also a television personality in effect, representing his network, and in the United States, we had a similar case like this involving Bart Hubick of the New York Post, right. who sued under the same law, the very same law, after he was fired uh, for making a uh, anti-Trump, uh, you know, I guess tweet, you know, on Twitter, which may, may have may or may not have gone over the line, but he ended up losing that lawsuit. So the question here is: Does Jeremy roanick have a case? And if he is able to proceed, will a New York jury? Consisting of um, you know of, of jurors who don't necessarily share his beliefs. I mean, New York is a very liberal part of the country, and it's basically the birthplace mm-hmm. of the Me Too movement. So those are two strikes against Jeremy Roenick in facing any kind of a jury pool in the New York County Supreme Court system.
0: Now, Daniel, the only win I could see is that I think the ju- a jury would have to uh, see the distinction between, and he notes it in the lawsuit that there's figure skating analysts Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir. Johnny Weir is openly gay, and they were talking almost in, a, again, a joking way about the body parts of ice skaters. They ha- He has to look and say, if you're f- not firing Johnny Weir, not disciplining him at all, why am I getting fired? Different circumstance, but a jury's going to have to probably buy that to award damages, to me anyway.
5: Yeah, but legally, that may not be enough to cross the finish line because that, in essence, is a claim of selective enforcement that... Uh, employees have been treated differently uh, for doing similar, um, you know, alleged acts of misconduct. Uh, that's a cognizable legal theory in civil rights law. I'm not sure if this is the right kind of selective enforcement claim because he's not just fashioning this as a, an, anti, an anti-straight lawsuit. He's also claiming as part of his, uh, of his 12 counts of discrimination that his political beliefs. Mm-hmm. His support for Donald Trump and desire to speak at the 2016 Republican National Convention factored in as a strike against him. Uh, and I, I, it, it, it doesn't strike me as a cognizable claim uh, when it would be hard-pressed, even though NBC and MSNBC sort of have a perception of, of having a somewhat liberal skew on things. But that's not the case for every show, and he's certainly by far not the only supporter of Donald Trump working in any large organization and mm. i would say that as as far as the comparison between his remarks and the ones made by Johnny Weir and Tara Lipinski i think his go a lot further i mean they were crude yeah. Yeah. and it objectified a, a woman's body parts and it was not it, it might have been said jokingly from his you know through his lens but it was certainly not a joking matter and if you're saying that in the public domain I'm sorry. If you're saying that uh, as an employee of a private corporation, you're going to get fired in this day and age. Uh, it has been happening all throughout Hollywood, and now it's you know seeping into the sports industry. And it can't be a backstop or a defense to 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 use the or what about that defense? What about this person? What about no. that anecdote? Un- unless unless uh, Ronit can point to some kind of a of a of a, of a trend or, or 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 de facto policy or pattern and practice or habit of having this kind of double standard hmm. i don't think an isolated instance of pointing to one comment made you know on, on one you know broadcast by a you know by a gay man uh equates to uh, uh, selective enforcement
0: i have a 45 seconds daniel do you think there's probably no chance nbc settles because to me they would have done it already before the lawsuit came out there would have been talks there would have uh-huh. been negotiations uh, i this is something i think nbc will will go to trial with and think they have a they have a case to defend themselves
5: well, Greg, the rubber never hits the road on a settlement until there's a compulsion to settle, either on the verge of a, of a trial or before an important executive has to face his deposition. Right when the lawsuit gets filed, there's no motivation, really, on the company side. I mean, first of all, they think they're in the right. This is not an embarrassing episode for NBC where they, they, they feel a need to settle this case so that it can get scuttled from the press. Uh, but also, they're going to have the upper hand procedurally because Ronick filed in the wrong court. He filed a state court claim trying to take advantage of New York state law, and he's not a New York state resident. NBC is a New York corporation. They're going to remove this case to federal court in New York where they stand a much higher likelihood of getting it dismissed on a motion to dismiss or motion for summary judgment. And while this garnered a lot of headlines, I'm not sure if this is true Mm -hmm. gender and sexual discrimination as as those terms are contemplated under New York law.
0: Daniel, love to have you on again when we got more time to get into this. Thanks very much for doing this today.
5: Thanks for having me on. It's always great. It was great to speak with
0: you. You got it, Daniel Wallach. At Wallach Legal. Follow him there. He's great for sports law. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Craig Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.